Hello, and welcome to the RA Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, your host. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, we're getting a special insight into the mind of Function One's creator, Tony Andrews. For those of you unfamiliar with Function One, it's considered to be one of the industry's top-of-the-line sound systems, outfitting clubs like Berghain and other venues that pay special attention to maximum resolution auditory experiences. Andrews formed the company in 1992, but for reasons other than just wanting to explore high-range audio alone. He sees sound as a facility to explore our communal mind and engage in the broader, spiritual meaning of music in the universe. I actually believe that humans are made for more than what we're currently doing. And we don't have to, we don't have to go through eons of time to evolve to it. Just need to switch on parts of our brain that we're not. Far from being a technical deep dive into loudspeaker design and engineering, in this exchange, which was hosted live at AVA Festival London by RA contributor Will Lynch, Andrews describes how his drive to build speakers was a response to his desire to examine the deeper meaning of music and how good quality sound can help people let go of themselves and connect to each other. There are a lot of wonderful and radical ideas presented in this interview, so get ready to lock in and expand your mind. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for coming, everyone. I'm Will Lynch. I'm a freelance music journalist, contributor to Resonant Advisor. And I'm very happy to be joined here by Tony Andrews, probably the most visionary designer of sound systems in our lifetime. We know him first and foremost as the founder and main creative force behind Function One, um, the iconic rigs you see at places like Space, Berkine, Labyrinth Festival, as well as AVA Belfast, and countless other dance music events around the world, big and small. Before that, he also had a company called Turbo Sound, which was the favorite sound system for the M25 parties that started UK rave culture. Um, parties would brag about having a Turbo Sound on the flyer, much the way promoters do about Function One rigs today. But beyond craftsmanship and audiophilia, there's a kind of deep motivation to what Tony and Function One do, a philosophy, a sort of spiritual dimension, and that's what I want to talk about today. Tony, I've heard you use this, this term, it almost seems like a personal catchphrase that I'd like you to define for us, and that is big audio. So what is big audio, and why is it so important to you? Big audio, I guess, is... Um audio that's uh, big enough for, you know, a few hundred people at minimum, but a few thousand. You know, it's not something that's been with us for probably much longer than about 50 years. So I thought, well, it's technology that seems to have got us into a bit of trouble. Maybe this is a bit of technology that can get us out of it. Um, so that's what I mean by big audio. Big audio, audio that's really good for lots of people at the same time. Now, okay, so big audio, audio that's loud enough to soundtrack a rave, a music festival, a big gathering of people that are all coming together and kind of being united by 
big audio. Um, but for you, there's, you know, so, so we picture those situations, we've all been in those situations, and um, they're really fun. Sometimes they're transcendent, sometimes they're really meaningful. But for you, it goes deeper than, you know, entertainment or a good night out or a good weekend. There's, there's a profound purpose to, to those kinds of gatherings and, and the role that sound plays in them. Um, yeah, I was wondering if, if you could sort of tell me what is that deeper side of, of, of big audio and of, and of these gatherings? What's, what's the larger significance beyond entertainment and a good time? Well, I guess on an individual level, sound can be very transporting. On a communal level, it, it can be very transporting as well. And I think that's, it's like a, it's like a joint meditation. When there's deep involvement and you're losing yourself so that we can find ourselves, as it were, or the communal mind, that's what I'm really interested in occurring. And I guess I, I, I figured, well, who am I to say what or when? But I could see, a, I could see at the end of the, um, the experiences that we were all having, and this is going back to pre-1970 even, um, that there could be a, an event, a coming together. Uh, as Terence McKenna put it, the transcendental object at the end of time. We need a paradigm shift, huge. When you say we need a paradigm shift, okay, so the paradigm shift in, in Terence McKenna's idea of the um, transcendental object at the end of time. Um, well, let's start with that, actually. I guess probably a lot of people in the room aren't familiar with that concept. Um, can you walk us through the basics of what, what is the, the transcendental object at, at the end of time? Well, it's something that Terence McKenna always used to refer to. Terence McKenna was uh, a visionary. He had a very agile mind, and he'd been a few places, and that was his description of that everything's building to a point in our communal mind. I don't know. I mean, it's a, just a really good phrase. For me, it means where I don't know the difference between what I am and the rest of the universe, where what's in my head is the same as what's outside my head. I mean, the oneness of all things is, I guess, what I'm talking about. Um, and when enough people realize and take that as a reality, then we can change. The world could be different. We desperately need something. We're not going to get out of the mess we're in politically. That's, you know, that's business as usual. We're very constrained by the reality that's just in a majority opinion. And that opinion, as we know, is manipulated. So it's not really a reality. It's just all fallen down to the lowest common denominator. I actually believe that humans are made for more than what we're currently doing. And we don't have to, we don't have to go through eons of time to evolve to it. We just need to switch on parts of our brain that we're not. I mean, there's loads of things I could say about. Um, BBC did a programme back in the 80s, I think, and they, they did a load of scans of people. And they scans were, of their brains, you mean? Indeed. And there was a couple of people 
who they found out later were recovered spino bifida cases, who, who only had about 3% of their brain left, if you like, but they were actually functioning people. I think one was an accountant. And the question that didn't get asked at that point is, well, if these guys appear to be normal on such a small amount of their remaining brain, what are the rest of us doing? What's it all for? Why aren't we, why aren't we walking on water? Why aren't we happy? Why aren't we understanding each other? So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's kind of like we're stuck as, as a culture, as, as, a, as a people, um, and music, big audio, the communal experience, the, the sort of, you know, what someone might describe as the ideal um, rave experience even, or just ideal sort of communal music experience. Um, do you feel that can help get us unstuck, help, help push us forward? I do, I very much believe in the, in the power of music. I mean, that's what's attracted me. The sound thing's just a medium. You know, the job there is to get it as clean and pure and accessible and engaging as possible. It's been, uh, it's been a lifelong journey and it's still going on. I'm still understanding things about audio. It's not like it's a done deal. And I don't expect to ever completely understand it all, but um, we focused on the, you know, the final transmission part, i.e. the loudspeakers themselves. Tell me about how this journey began. Um, there, there was a time uh, when you were in your 20s or something and, and you kind of dropped everything to, to get involved in music, right? What had such a powerful lure about music to you at that time? Okay, so as a teenager, I was listening to uh, Radio Caroline and Radio London, which were the uh, pirate radio stations in the North Sea. And they were feeding us a lot of, not just the charts, which were okay at the time, but there was a lot of other stuff going on. People like Jimmy Smith, jazz, and I just loved it. I don't know why I fell in love with music so, so much. Uh, I tried to learn the bass. I was too shy to get up on stage and do all that. So I sort of fell into the technical side. I've got a fairly scientific mind. Got to university, couldn't take any more of sitting there while they tell me things that I write down and later on I'm going to have to put it, put it down in, in an exam or something. And it was all going off in the late 60s, as you can imagine. And uh, so I left, I dropped out, and I went to work for... Pete Brown's Pi Blocto as a drum roadie and uh, realised that... So I'd built my own hi-fi previous to that and I'd got into putting the speakers each side at a fair distance. But, you know, standard practice is to go like that. But I, I decided that it was much better if you had the, you know, the dimension. Because I don't want to hear the speakers, just want the picture. And you focus on the picture, I mean, your mind and your body just go places. If you add to that a good rhythm, then your body's got something to do as well. So, I don't know, you just, get, you just get into another place. There's a kind of energy, there's a power in it. And when people do it together, you know, it's, a, it's an amplification and multiplication. I had a feeling that, well, there's, this is a road, there's something here. You know, uh, the, the, the colours, the, the fractal patterns, the, it's going somewhere. You can feel it. I mean, I remember the raves in the 80s when um, you could just feel the... It was like a rush. Everybody was on a rush and everybody started blowing whistles and was going nuts. Everybody was in track suits or 
anything because they were dancing their nuts off. We weren't had, we'd never the phone distraction then, thank God. So it was good. And I thought there's, there's something here. Well, I actually was thinking that at 20. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I thought if I can feel this and I can experience this, I'm a human, so is everyone else. They can, everybody can do it. I think that's why we've always got together. And getting back to big audio, we've now got a means to have something beyond what we've ever had, well, at least for history as it's written so far. So I think that's what I mean by big audio. That's new. And, you know, one of the problems we've got is a, a technological society with a paleolithic mindset. And we need to get out of that. People say it's, well, it's human nature to be tribal, to be... It is, the family, it starts with the family, I guess. But actually, we're all one family. There's probably only one entity in the entire universe. We just individuated aspects of it with amnesia. From the creator's point of view, it's probably, well, it's an experiment. Let's set these conditions up and see what happens. And here we are. <laughs> I imagine, um, you know, to basically have thrown yourself into music um, in the late 60s, this philosophical, spiritual dimension to music that you feel today, I imagine it would kind of front and center then. The, you know, it's, it's not just that there's a lot of wicked music coming out. A lot of that music had the feeling of signaling some kind of important uh, cultural change, important step forward even. Did you feel that at the time? Was that part of what made it exciting? Yeah, I can remember Elvis Presley when he had hits on the radio. You know, I remember my mother uh, dancing. I was embarrassed, of course, because you are when your parents dance. But, you know, there was this moment where I felt this kind of, I suppose it's Kundalini maybe, but I felt this feeling at the bottom of his spine that was just going up here with this rock and roll, you know. it's uh, So I guess for me, that's where it started. I was about nine years old and thinking, Man, what's this? No one's told us about this. This is, this is new. This is good. So I guess it was rock and roll, you know, the 60s. Well, it went from that to the psychedelic era quite quickly, actually. It's only a matter of about 10 years, 15. How did you come to design your first speaker? How did the idea come to you and what was the project like? What was your first attempt at, at building a speaker like? Well, I think like a lot of people, you just bought a Wharfdale Super 12 and put it in a box. And I remember, well, I was two, because stereo was definitely right there from the beginning. You need that dimension. And a lot of today's processing upsets that, takes it away. It's very hard to evaluate in mono with one speaker. A really good speaker will put an image around you in your head. That's what I've always been looking for. The first time that I started to think about building speakers was um, one of these boxes I'd built for this Wolfdale speaker, my brother pointed it into the corner of the room. And although all the mid and top went, I noticed that the bass got stronger. And that's how I discovered horn loading, I guess, and reversed the corner of the room and built a box that was a bit like a W with the speaker pointing at it. As a bass player, I think his name was Pixie, he was with the Graham Bondle organisation at the time. Uh, and that's where Ginger Baker came from. Well, he played with him for a while at any rate. And he came down, he played, he plugged his bass in, plaster fell out the ceiling, we were all happy as Larry. It was just wonderful. <laughs> Thinking about how distinctive your speakers have been from Turbo Sound to Function One, you clearly bring something different to the craft. I wonder if there's a way you could explain in 
relatively layman's terms, what is it that you do that's different, that makes your speakers sound different, and that's given them the place and the culture that they have today? What's the, what's the special sauce? Well, in the early days, there were kind of lowish frequency speakers, and there were horns, and um, Altec Lansing, a good example of that. But we always seemed to be lacking mid-range, and I, I bumped into the right people. We'd already decided that Horn Loaded was where it was at, because you could get another... 10 dB. What does 10 dB mean? It means it's 10 times louder, actually. 3 dB is a doubling, but 10 dB is 10 times louder. For So you take a speaker, you put a horn on it, and you, as soon as you do this, you're, shall we say, making the interface between the cone and the air a lot more effective. So that's the purpose of horns, is to, it's to hold the air in place so it can receive an impression. So horn loading's got to be where it's at, but... It wasn't just the extra efficiency. It's the fact that it's more dynamic and it's alive. I mean, we've had trumpets forever. You know, that's just another horn, really. Without the, without the long horn and, the, and that particular shape that we're all kind of used to seeing, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be any, any effect at all, really. The thing about horns is that they can get very big. If you, if you want to go down to 30 hertz, I mean, that's 10 metres wavelength, so you need a horn that's at least that long and with a mouth that's that big, otherwise you, it just all diffracts and goes everywhere. But we're getting into physics now, we don't need to necessarily... Because I get back to the question, what makes it different? I think we brought mid-range to the story. You know, with the turbo sound, we actually called it a turbo, and that's why we called the company Turbo Sound. It was a friend of mine, he was just playing around in his kitchen. He picked up a rolling pin and put it down the middle of the horn. And suddenly things started organising better. You know, it became more coherent. So we evolved it. And, you know, yesterday I'm still working on that same concept. Getting the join of the, the back of the axe head to uh, work with the cone. We're down the compression driver kind of um, tolerances, you know, fractions of a millimetre. I never expected to be there. Really didn't. When, you, when you've got a dedicated mid-range device, your high frequencies can, which are typically compression drivers with, a, with a, some kind of a metal diaphragm, and if you run low frequencies into them, they really sound bad. I mean, it's like oral sandpaper, it's just no good. So it pushes it higher, so you can have a crossover point at five kilohertz. It's much more relaxed at that frequency. Let me give you some basic facts about audio. We're all used to light because we can see it and define it. And we all know about the rainbow. That's an octave spectrum. But in audio, we have 10 of those and they go from, shall we say, wavelengths that are as long as this room to stuff that's about that long, you know, half an inch. And that's orders of magnitude in difference. So that's why we have to have multiple devices like bass, mid and top, you know, at the very least. Uh, because the requirements, are, I, mean, I mean, you need bulldozers at one end and a, and a hummingbird at the other. So it's a big spectrum. But it gets even deeper because we have this fantastic ability that if we hear a sound, we instantly know where it's come from, especially if you're outside. And, and that, that's, that's not magic, although it'd be nice if it was. 
Um, it's actually a process. And the brain is capable of picking up the difference in arrival times between one ear and the other, and it does it all day long. And this is why when you're in a horrible acoustic environment, which so many of our square box buildings are, you get tired and irritable because your hearing doesn't give up. It's always there. I mean, it saved us from the saber-toothed tiger when it was sneaking up on us, you know, because we could hear it coming. You needed to know which the direction was. If you're going to run away from something, you need to wear nowhere. It's, you can see how it's happened, that we have this incredible vector location. And to do that, a friend of mine at Derby University, they actually did the experiment where put a student blindfolded and have a, have a speaker. How many degrees around the arc do you have to move the speaker before somebody knows it's moved? Well, it's about, it actually is about two degrees. So if you do the trigonometry on that, it boils down to 15 or to 18 millionths of a second. So another way to come at it is if you think, well, to get a movie to look like it's a continuum, it's 28, 30 frames per second, and you've, you've got a smooth result. To do that with audio, you've got to move 2,000 times faster. So we're dealing with a sense that's got 10 times the bandwidth of the visual, and it's 2,000 times higher resolution. And we have equipment to deal with that, and yet it's never thought about hardly. Now, all the way, I, all the time I'm talking, I can hear the oh, going on in the room. We abuse ourselves with sound, actually. It's, it's criminal. Starts in the classroom. Well, I don't know, I think they've got onto it now, but it used to be so hard that the people at the back didn't have a chance of getting any intelligible information. We didn't grow up in cubicle boxes. We were on the plains of Africa. We were in the forests. We were in caves, none of which have got plain walls that reflect. So needless to say, the house that Anne and I live in is completely <laughs> dead. Nothing comes back. So it feels like you're outside. I guess that's a few basics about sound. It's an incredibly powerful sense. So when you step into a room, you consciously notice what the sound is like in there. Yeah. And I guess it sounds like you're I saying... I walk that we... in and walk straight out again. <laughs> <laughs> Probably happens in a lot of clubs. But it sounds like you're saying that actually we all kind of do that. We just, we're not consciously aware of it, but we're, but we're affected by it. Yeah, I, th I really do think so. I think that a lot of stress is to do with the fact that there's just so much racket and there's no peace. And if we're going to live in square buildings, and we will be because it's the engineering way to achieve space easily, then we need to be thinking about treatment. You know, people ask us about clubs. They say, well, have you thought about, you're going to spend how much on the sofas? And yet you've not even thought about the ceiling, which is, my experience says that most of the problem comes from the roof. People will put, you know, velvet around up to about there, but it's actually the ceiling. And if you've got home studio, all you've got to do is put a blanket above your head so that you don't get the reflections off the ceiling and things will be a lot better straight away. Again, it's not... It's not rocket science. In a way, it sounds like as much deep pleasure as we can get from good sound, bad sound is just as harmful to us. It, it is, because if you're going to be big and powerful, you can't be ugly as well. You know, it's got to be, if it's going to be strong, then it's got to be nice. It's got to be something that invites you in, like a warm day or a, a nice pool or whatever, something of that ilk. It's, it's, that's the thing I've got in my mind anyway. And we don't 
make a sound at all. We just try to get rid of all the nonsense. I mean, there's everything, you know, there's like everything, everything vibrates. Everything's got a resonant frequency. Things bend in a microscopic way. But when they do, they store energy and then they release it. And then and it, and it muddies the signal. To get a human voice to be really big and perfectly what that voice is, you know, that's an objective. So when I'm really getting critical, particularly in the presence area, say from 2K to 5K, I'm listening to Diana Krell or, you know, a really good vocalist because the female vocal is so um, telling in that area. And so that's what I do. So I have a selection of tracks that do certain things or tell me how it performs. I walk into a club, I've got about four or five tracks, I listen, and that's within a very short space of time, I know what's happening. This is the best measuring equipment, and it's also closest to reality. You know, for instance, we, we are so focused on the leading edge of the sound. So it's the microsecond stuff. Never mind what you average over three seconds, we don't pay much attention to that. It's always the leading edge. And I remember somebody saying you can trade prescience for volume. Okay, I mean, this goes back to the 60s. Um, Red Rocks is a fantastic venue in Colorado. And there was, John Denver was playing one time and they were, this is probably mid, late 70s. And they had this thing where they would put a delay on the PA. And it was noted that all the people in natural earshot of the singer actually focused, even though the PA is 100 times louder, were focused on the guy on stage because that was arriving first. And that's another interesting thing about hearing. So you always go for the first arrival, as we'd say. An interesting thing to me is how it seems to you your mission with a sound system is to deliver the original organic thing as cleanly, as purely as possible. You know, it's not to boost it or embellish it. It's to be the most kind of gentle steward of, of the signal as you can manage. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean making it soft. It's really precise. So when a snare hits and you've got zero energy to maximum in a nanosecond, it needs to be able to do that. It needs to be able to jump. So if you want speakers to be real, they've got to be fast, really fast because we are, and that's why it'll sound like a speaker. When it doesn't sound like a speaker, then we know we got somewhere. To my mind, it's work in progress, it's not over, and yet everybody behaves like it's all done and dusted. Reminds me a little bit of um, my, the first time I ever went to Berkheim, probably the first time I really noticed a Function One sound system, and it felt like the sound wasn't coming from the speakers, it felt like it was just coming out of thin air, or, or you know, just emanating from from the building itself or, or something like that, um, which I guess yeah. is maybe what you're explaining. It doesn't sound like a speaker. It sounds like there's just sound in the room. I think they call it immersive now, don't they? Uh, <laughs> but that's what you're looking for. If you want to dance, the sound's got to be with you or you've got to be with the sound. And, and you know, the bass has got to be right. It's no good if it's... It might go deep, but it's got to be coherent. It's it, It's got to... You know, it's got to have a line that travels all the way up to the treble. You want it all to arrive. I mean, timing. I kind of overemphasize how important timing is to us. We're really good at it. It's crucial to get these components all lined up so that the whole thing arrives in a smack, because that's dynamic and that's exciting. And that's what we're looking for, I think. I want the excitement so that we get to the place where we might find out something more than where we are right now.
We've got about 10 minutes left. I got a couple more questions I'd like to ask, but first I wanted to see if anyone in the audience had anything they want to ask Tony. Hi, thanks for that. My question is, um, with the current trend towards single source speakers like JBLs and stuff through Bluetooth, and obviously most ordinary people will be playing a lot of audio through their phones. Do you think we're doomed or is there something <laughs> to work with those things? Is there anything we can do to make that work better? Well, <laughs> I mean, great that you get things out of a phone, but... No, I mean, I think we're doomed if we don't completely wake up. Good to see that people have become aware that everybody's actually of the one thing and therefore should be treated with equal understanding and respect. But we've got to get to the higher part of ourselves. It's a very hard thing to describe in one sentence, but um, big audio and lots of people enjoying it and the right music can produce communal feelings that we've always enjoyed, but there's no limit to that. It can go a lot further. That's my contention. So all the time we can have musical events and lots of people can be involved and somebody's coming up with the right music at the right moment, then who knows? I mean, it's, it's down to us. We can go on looking up there and thinking somebody else is going to sort it out or we can do it. And if there's a steering wheel to this and nobody's on it, then, then get hold of it if you know where to go. It's our consciousness... We're here, and the way we're carrying on at the minute, who knows for how much longer? I think there is an element of seriousness that that thought brings in, but music is definitely to lose yourself so that we can discover ourselves. I mean, dancing with a load of people is just the best vibe because we're all feeling free and, uh, and loose and, and things start to start to happen. And I don't know what it is that's going to emerge, but there is, there is possibility. And I'm just, it's really important that I just put that on the table. There's way more to this than, so, you know, the, the dark stuff, I'm not a fan of. I'm not. Um, I believe you've got to have, do, I mean, you're making discretionary decisions all day long. I think you should make them about music as well. With um, the arrival of like, more binaural music, which obviously uses the idea of being able to hear the distance and the proximity within which sounds are coming to you, um, are there things you're trying to do with speakers to enhance or work with that new kind of way of making music? I first heard uh, Ambisonics, I think it was back in the 70s. I was really taken with it. There's a bit of a problem with surround sound, though, and that is how slow sound is through the air. And once you get to... I don't know, um, about double the Hass window, which is uh, about 40 feet. What's that in metres? Uh, let's say 12, 13. So that's about the limit for a surround sound field because beyond that, you, don't, you start to get to doubling and you literally, anything percussive, it's just, you know, it, it goes wrong. So we had low... I mean, I was being intrigued by the whole thing of surround sound. And we did this, we did this thing in uh, at Glastonbury, I think it was, it was in 91, maybe, uh, called the Experimental Soundfield. And it was by doing things like that that I came to the conclusion that actually it's more trouble than it's worth. Quite a lot of bands don't like it because if they hear something over, over there coming back at them, that's upsetting. And it's limited. 
Whereas really good stereo hasn't got a size limit. And we've been through a whole process of surround sound stuff, which is fine in the home for sure. You know, but that's more individual or small group. I'm interested in a fairly large group because I think we need that to achieve what I would call critical mass. You know, where enough people are inhabiting a new reality that actually that becomes the thing. Because the current one we're in is a flawed majority opinion. And I think I've already said that anyway. Um, but we, you know, it's a working thing. We seem to be, no, we're not managing really. <laughs> we're on the way out at this point. Um, unless we really do something dramatic with, a, with, this is the most expensive organ in the whole of nature, the human brain. It's an imagination machine. It's not a prison. I'll just say that. It really isn't. There's so many people who don't care how they mislead you. Got to get your own understanding, your own mind. And the best way to do that is to, is to just let it flow. You know, it, it, the universe is so intricate, massive and multidimensional. I wouldn't for a second say what's up and what's down because it's, it's beyond me. But I've got to a point where I'm in complete respect of what we inhabit, who, what we are. And I think that's a lot of what's missing. There's no respect anymore. Everybody just expects everything to arrive and be there. But it's not how the universe works. You know, there's a balance always. Anyway, I'm going off track there. Uh, we were about binaural. So we finished up um, going back to stereo after probably 20 years of trial and error with surround sound, as I generally call it that. And it's really funny because when we decided that it was a waste of time, um, everybody else started to bring it in. <laughs> Which <laughs> does amuse me. Um, it, 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 if you get your speakers right, you can have that immersive thing of stereo and it's not constrained to by the speed of sound at that stage. Thanks so much, Tony. Really appreciate your perspective and your contribution to our experiences in music. And thanks everybody for your questions and thanks for listening. Thank you very much, Will. for listening to this live RA exchange with Tony Andrews of Function One. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the RA exchange for more updates. We're always looking for more ideas for interviews, documentaries, and series. So give us a shout at exchange at ra.co if you want to work together. Until next time, take care. <laughs>